you are vast, you are incredible and difficult to comprehend sometimes. In our lives, we go down paths, we have things take place, and we don't know how to respond. We don't know if you know what we're going through. I pray this morning as we look at this next psalm, Lord, that we would know very deeply that you are with us, you walk with us. There's no place that we can go to hide from you. There's no place that we can run that you aren't already there. Spirit of the Most High God, I pray you would come and reveal yourself to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. We are continuing on a series that we started off uh, many weeks ago now called The Psalms of Summer. And yes, I still like that title. I still giggle a little bit when I think about it. So, you know, if you don't like it, too bad. No, I'm kidding. We've been going through the summer and we've been talking about different psalms. We've been looking through the book of Psalms and kind of staying on a particular uh, psalm, kind of getting a little bit more from it and kind of going a little bit deeper. Let's recap what we talked about last week. Last week, we were at Wellesley Church as a church together, and we want to talk about worship. What is worship? Why has worship become so bizarre? Why do people uh, get angry about worship? People say, oh, if it's song, my favorite song's not sung, or if this is not going to happen, or if that doesn't happen, then I'm not going to worship. It's just, it's become kind of a, a, a weird thing. And so we went back into the Bible, and we looked at this one moment in time where David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. Now, this is a fantastic story, right? The Ark of the Covenant was the representation to the people of Israel about God's presence, right? It was, it was this incredible thing, the sacred object, and David had the opportunity to bring it back to Israel. And we look at this one moment where David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and that is a picture that, like, like you know, like, what kind of dancing? Was it like, you know, jazz? Was it tap? Was it square dancing? Like, what kind of dancing was he dancing with all of his might? But whatever it was, you just get the sense that David was so in the moment that he didn't care who was watching. And we took that uh, three lessons from this kind of story. The first one we said is that we must prepare ourselves before we come into God's presence. Remember, David stood in 2 Samuel chapter 6 before 30,000 men and said, consecrate yourselves. Prepare yourselves, because we're gonna, we're, we are going to go into God's presence. And unless you do so, you'll go, you will go into God's presence unprepared. We talk about how worship requires our whole being. And at UCC and at Wellesley as well, too, we talk about worship as a physical aspect of who we are. Right? It's not just about, you don't have to raise your hands, you don't have to clap, you don't have to do anything. But it's, it's more than just simply singing songs. It's more than just simply reciting words. And the final thing we talked about is that worship is an external expression of an internal reality. See, the thing that's bizarre about the worship and the conversations about worship today is it's all about style of music, it's all about lights, or it's about this, or it's about that. But if you're a worshiper in the car, in, 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 in the morning, in, in, in classroom, in, in, in wherever you work, you'll worship because that's who we are. Worship is an external expression of an internal reality. And so whether we sing a hymn, whether we sing the latest song, or we sing it this way, whether it's a guitar, whether it's piano, whatever it is, we will worship. Why? Because God is worthy of our worship. And so 
that's kind of what we talked about last week. We looked at this idea of um, songs of ascent. These were um, psalms in the book of Psalms, 15 of them, Psalm 120 to 134, where the Israelites would sing them as they approached Jerusalem as a way of preparing themselves. They're called songs of ascent because Jerusalem was the highest point of Israel. So you would literally be walking uphill. And as you're walking, you'd see the tabernacle, you'd see the temple. And you'd sing these songs as a family to prepare yourselves to go into God's presence. The songs of ascent are in the Psalms because they are meant for the people to remember that we go to God. And that no matter what the world says, no matter what happens, this is how we prepare ourselves to go into God's presence. That's what we talked about last week. This, today, we're going to look at another psalm. And if you have your Bibles or your electronic device, turn to Psalm 139. We're going to look at probably one of the most misunderstood psalms in the book of Psalms. And the reason I say misunderstood is because this psalm is more like a Quentin Tarantino movie than it is a Hillsong kind of a joy song. And you're going to see why in a second. This psalm asks us some pretty interesting questions. There's four things a psalm is going to ask us and help us to kind of understand. The first thing the psalm is going to say is, let God discover me. The second thing the psalm is going to teach us is, let God find me. The third thing the psalm is going to say is, let God see me. And the fourth thing we're going to see the psalm saying is, let God lead me. When I'm going to, as we start walking through the psalms, you're going to recognize the phrases, the verses. But what you may not realize is all of the stuff that you know so well leads us to the fourth part of the psalm, which is actually why the psalm was written. So let's kind of just jump right in um, without further um, kind of... Uh, preamble because I just want to kind of dig into it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through the four stanzas, but I'm not going to take too much time with the first three stanzas, and you're going to see why in a moment, because they're pretty self-explanatory. It's the fourth stanza that's kind of the weird one that we need to spend time with in order to understand the first three. So Psalm 139 is written into four stanzas, four verses of song. And so the first one is Psalm verses, uh, Psalm 139 verses 1 to 6. And most of the stanzas start off with a question. And in verse 1, it says this, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You have searched me. Now, the word searched that they use in the Hebrew is to dig. Right? It's to dig. It's, It's this idea that you have to uncover. So what is on the surface is only a piece, but you have to go deeper. So, for example, a couple years ago, um, I noticed that I had these patches of dead grass on my lawn. I threw seed at it, I threw soil at it, I watered it, and nothing. I couldn't grow grass on it. Until one day, a friend of mine said to me, oh, I know why you can't grow grass. I'm like, what animal must I sacrifice in order to get this grass to grow? Because I am, you know, and it doesn't help the fact that, you know, the couple of, you know, uh, houses down the street, their lawn is immaculate green, and it looks so nice. I want to sleep on it, although I think they might be upset with that. It's cushy, it's beautiful, and then there's my lawn with all these spots of like yellow and, and dead soil. And he said, oh, the reason you can't, the reason you have these spots of, of no grass is because you have grubs. I'm like, what? And we took a shovel and we dug down, and sure enough, we turned over the soil and there's these white grubs. And I'm like, ew, like, 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 who, who did this? Like, this is how it goes. And so these are the chemicals you have to use to kill these things and or use nematodes or there's different ways of killing it. But the point is, whatever the problem was with the grass was below the surface. And no matter what I did on the surface, it didn't 
address the root problem. Well, when the psalmist starts off Psalm 139, he says, listen, God has dug into me. And not just dug the surface of me, but what I present to the world, the mask or the face I present to the world. He has dug deeper into me and he's found things in me. Whether they be grubs or soil or whatever it be, he has seen the dark parts of my life. And there's phrases in the first stanza that gets us the sense that God understands. The psalmist says, you perceive, you discern, you are familiar. Right? These are phrases of, of intimacy. Right? The psalmist is saying that whatever I am, my God has seen it. Right? Whatever is in me, he's seen it. And these are the things that we tend to hide from people. We don't want people to know our business. We don't want people to kind of know what's going on. We, we don't. And, and rightfully so, because it's kind of private. Right? But the psalmist starts off this very famous psalm by saying, I am laid bare before God that he, he knows me. Uh, the first stanza speaks of a creator who is intimately aware of who we are and what motivates us. He discerns, he's familiar, he knows us. He has dug into the very depths of our souls and he has seen us from the very first breath to our very last one. He knows us. So whatever the psalmist understands about the creator, he says that this creator, this person, this being knows me. That's the first stanza. The second stanza is about a God who can find us. In verse 7 to 12, we see these very interesting uh, phrases. It starts off with this question again. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The question he's asking is, am I ever away from God? It kind of reminds me of... uh, I was a camp counselor uh, many years ago, and um, we had this camp that we were at, and there was this you know, manicured lawn, like this lawn, and then there was a forest. And so we'd say to the kids, don't go to the forest, right? Just, you know, don't go to the forest. We weren't allowed to say that there'd be wolves in there to tear them apart. I couldn't say that, but, although I felt like saying that, that would be good, right? So I, we'd tell the kids, you know, you can play here, but stay out of the forest. Obviously, we didn't want them to hurt themselves. There's always one kid right? There's this one kid who walks right up to the very edge of the lawn, who looks back at me and says, hey, counselor, is it okay if I stay here? And he's on the lawn, so technically he's not on the floor. I'm like, yes, it's fine. He reaches over and touches a tree. He says, hey, counselor, is this okay? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> right? And then, and then, of course, he puts his foot in the forest and one foot in the lawn and says, hey, counselor, is this okay? And I said, nah, like he's negotiating this idea of like, what are the boundaries here, right? Like, is it, I'm not really in the forest, I'm on the lawn, right? So, you know, we did what every counselor does. We duct taped into the tree for three hours. Um, that was an interesting conversation with his parents. But anyways, the author, the, the writer in the second stanza plays this kind of celestial hide and go seek. God, if I, um, if I went to the very depths of the ocean, would you find me there? God, if I, if I built an aircraft and I flew on, 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 the, on the wings of the dawn, would, would you find me there? God, I have found this camouflage outfit, and I'm going to hide. Could you see me there? God, I'm going to go to Sheol. I'm going to go to hell. Very depths. Can, will you find me there? And it's kind of like this kid that you know, said, like, don't go there. Right? He's like this, if I... If I, right, God, if I did this, if I did that, would you still find me, right? The author keeps coming back and saying, you know what? It doesn't matter what I try to do, where I try to hide myself, God will find me. And I was reading the second stanza. It reminded me of a poem 
written by a Canadian in 1968, uh, someone who was in the Royal Canadian Air Force. This individual was beginning to test uh, fly jets. Right, so in 1968, they were starting to uh, jets were being introduced to the Canadian military, and this gentleman uh, flew one of them, and he wrote this 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 poem, and it's kind of a famous poem, um, and he says something that's kind of interesting, right? Because it kind of feels very psalm-like to me. He says this: "Oh, I have slipped the surly bonds of earth and danced the skies on laughter silvered wings." Sunward, I've climbed and joined the tumbling mirth of sun-split clouds and done a hundred things you have not dreamt of. Wheeled and soared and swung high in the subtle silence, hovering there if I've chased the shouting wind along and flung my eager craft through the foot, footless halls of air. It's a lot of language, so forgive me as I'm walking through it here, right? Up, up, the long, delirious, burning blue, I've topped the windswept heights with easy grace where never lark or even eagle flew. And while with silent lifting mind, I've trod the high, untrespassed sanctity of space, put out my hand and touched the face of God. You know, it's this beautiful idea that for the first time he's experiencing the exhilaration of, of flying this jet in the sky and, and, he's, and he's zipping through and he's, he's just, these emotions are coming over him and you can get that sense from him. But yet at the end of it, he says, you know, I've gone so high that no bird has flown this high. There's nothing living up here except me. And I looked to the sky and I reached out my hand figuratively and there God is. I've touched the face of God. What it says to me, it's so interesting, is that this, this person kind of got it. Like he is with the psalmist in the second stanza. It doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter the places you've been, whether it's with Dr. Zeus or with this guy, right? The places you'll go, the things you'll see, God is with you. And that can be both exhilarating or maybe bring us some shame. Right, we've used this phrase, it's kind of a comical one, and I've been guilty of using it before, right? Like, on Sunday morning, I'm getting up and I'm going to church. That's the dumbest thing we could ever say. We don't go to church, we are the church. We're gathering with other churches, with other people that are there. This, this is not a church, this is a theater. They're going to show another movie in here, whether good or bad, it doesn't matter. This is a box. This is a box that gathers us who are the church. Right? And so the psalmist is saying, I don't get up on the Sabbath and go to the synagogue and meet God there. He's not there waiting for me like, hey, I've been here for a half hour, where are you? As soon as I wake up in the morning, God's with me. As I walk out my door, God is with me. As I go throughout my day, school, work, friends, family, whatever it would be, God is with me. And so the second stanza is this idea that God has searched me. He has found me. He knows where I am. Whether I play hide and go seek with him or not, God gets that. The third stanza, which is verses 13 to 18, starts off with this phrase. For you created my inmost being. Right? You created my inmost being. Now, this is so interesting because you have to put the psalm here in the context of the ancient world. Right? The body is kind of a wondrous thing, but it's also something we know something about. But imagine somebody writing this around 1000 BC. Right? To that person, the body is, is kind of mysterious. It's full of red stuff. We think it's important, right? It's, it's, it's got these bones, these, these hard pieces to it. But then there's all this other stuff we don't know what quite to do with, right? And so what he says here, he says, you have created my inmost being. In other words, these parts of me that I don't understand, the parts I'm not quite sure how it fits together, the hip bones connected to the 
whatever bone is connected to the hip bone, I'm not quite sure either. But you get the idea, right? Leg bone, that's it. He's connected to the leg bone, right? Um, so the, the writer says this. He's moved from the sky. He's moved from the air. Now he's getting to very intimate. He's saying, now God understands what I am and who I am. The, 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 in, the insides of, of who he is, is 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 mysterious and complex, but he knows that God said. The, the other phrase he uses is that you knit me together. I don't knit. But it's like, you know, knit one, pearl two, high five three. I don't know, but it, it's a very long process of putting something together, right? You start off with this, this thread. And at the end of it, however long it is, you can have a scarf, an afghan, I'm not even sure I know what an Afghan is. Uh, uh, like a blanket, whatever it be. You quilt. Like that, that's what he says God is with us. Right? Now, watch this. This is where it gets very interesting because in the last two verses of the third stanza, he moves from this idea of self reflection to something else. Look what he says How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. The last two verses of the third stanza move us now from our self-contemplation and prepares the reader for a sudden jolt. This is the Quentin Tarantino part of the psalm. Because for the first three stanzas, there has been this beautiful verse. God, you know me. God, wherever I am, you're there with me. God, you created me. And we all say, they're going, yeah, I remember these verses. But now watch what the next stanza says because the writer actually is writing this next stanza and it actually is probably the most important part of the psalm, but it's one that people don't tend to listen or read because it's very uncomfortable. Now look at the next few verses and look what he says. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. What? This does not fit at all in the first three stanzas of this poem. It's, it's almost as if the guy who wrote the first three had an argument with his wife and came back and wrote the last one, right? Or, or, or car broke down, or... Uh, you know, bumped his head or, or, or trashed his camel. I don't know, right? But you get the idea, right? This last verse is so angry and it does not fit in the first three. What is going on here? Right? Like I said to you before, everyone knows the first couple of verses of Psalm 139, but no one reads to the end of the story. And it comes to this point of like God, the guy saying, if only you, God, would slay the wicked away from me. Right? He's trying to create distance from whatever these wicked people are. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you? See, we look at the Psalms and we talk about the Psalms. And I said to you before, at the very beginning of this series, the Psalm deals with the world not as it should be, but as it is. And when we look at the world as it is, we have to realize that the Psalms use language, they use emotion, but they use all human emotions, right? What we tend to do, we've dipped the Bible in Purell, and we've kind of sanitized it to our North American sensibilities. So people say things like, you know, oh, God is loving. And you're absolutely correct, but the problem is, it is only a piece of who God is. So... For example, let me give you a real-life example. 
is that we look at God and we say, you know, God is loving because God gives me what I want. If God does what I think he should do, then he's good. But if he does what I don't think he should do, he's bad. Bad God, bad. Right? And so we have this idea that God is only God if he operates the way we think he should. This morning, I got a notice on my phone. And the notice was that my kids have overgone, overreached the data on their phones. And so I have the master thing, and I turned off all the data on their phones. Now, my daughter Olivia, she is the heart of our family. She just feels everything, right? And, of course, I get this, like, like a two-thumber, right? You know, my two screenfuls of just, just, just text my daughter, Dad, please don't turn off the data. Dad, what will I do up at camp without Dad? Dad, I need to. And, and she goes on and, and starts negotiating. Dad, I will give you $20. I'm like, kid, you have no idea. That doesn't even buy you a megabyte of data. Like, right, I'll give you $20 if you turn it back on. Dad, how could you? Dad, don't you not love me? Dad, like, how could you? Like, Dad, I have become the enemy. Because Instagram is no longer available on her phone. And whatever Snapchat she's doing, whatever streams or, or strokes or streaks or whatever the, the thing is called now, it's over. I, as her father, who love her to death. I love my daughters. I love my wife. But I'm now operating, um, acting in a way that how could that even be loving? And that's kind of how we look at God a little bit. Is we say, God is loving as long as good things happen in my life. But if bad things happen, well, I don't, know how to, I don't know how to quantify that. I don't know how to wrap my mind around that. Now, what's interesting about the Psalms is, is that these verses, right, the context of verses 19 to 21 are out of place in the context of the whole Psalm, which in itself is moving because of the serene language, full of intimacy and worship. Psalm 139, if you took the first three stanzas, it's beautiful. And would rank up there amongst like the most beautifully written psalms. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. But it stands in number four that jumps out at us and slaps us in the face. If the Bible was a pop-up book, you'd open up Psalm 139 and be like, what the heck? And like, it was just like, this is just, I don't, I don't know how to wrap my mind around this. And thank you for laughing at the pop-up book joke. I, it never lands anywhere. So this is fantastic that it's working here this morning. I came across a commentator, and this is what he said about the last, uh, the last stanza of Psalm 139. Despite what we might think at first view, the text does not contain an outburst of personal feelings of revenge and hatred of a vindictive man. Neither does the total hatred against the enemy expressed by the poet function as an obscure source of violent fanaticism by which he sanctifies the aggression against other human beings. To the poet, hating the enemy is primarily the reverse of his turning and dedication to God. In these words, he confesses that he radically turns his back to the world of violence, bloodthirsty men, and wickedness and rebellion against God. So what he is saying here in the final stanza is that there, are, there is evil in the world. And because there is evil in the world, I will stand against it because God stands against it. Look at a couple of verses within the book of Psalms of things it says to us. Look at Psalm 11 verse 5. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. Psalm 5.5, 5, the arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. And Psalm 31 verse 6, the psalmist says this, I hate those who cling to worthless idols. As for me, I trust in the Lord. 
And these are just a couple of examples. And again, the word hate feels like something that should not be accredited to God. Here's the reality though, right? Is that we have to understand that God is, God has set boundaries in in life for us. And he has said to us, this is what is right and this is what is wrong. A famous author by the name of John Stott wrote this book called The Cross of Christ. And he tries to wrap his mind around the wrath or the anger or the hatred of God. And he says this about it. He says, the wrath of God is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. He goes on to say this, when we displace God's anger towards sin, what are we asking God to do? What are we asking him to overlook? Are we forgetting that sin is the cause of every form of brokenness on this planet and that in every sin, there is a victim that cries out for justice? So what's he saying here? Is that we have this tendency to overlook or to kind of massage or to manipulate or manage what we think is right and wrong. God does not do that because when we talk about sin, it's this abstract concept the world uses. But really when we would say sin, let's talk about violence. Let's talk about rape. Let's talk about uh, injustice towards poor people, the poverty. Let's talk about how we treat refugees. Let's talk about all these things we talk about that we get so angry about, we categorize that as sin. And God has said that sin is what hurts and destroys and harms people on this world. And that every time we commit these acts, whenever we engage in these acts, God's not okay with it. God is not okay with the violence perpetrated against people regardless of their religious status. God is not okay with the poor being oppressed by the rich. God is not okay with the government hurting those that it's supposed to govern. God is not okay with that. And so what the psalmist is saying, what John Stott is saying, is that sin is the very root of all the brokenness on the planet. And God stands against all of it. It doesn't stand against it in a passive way. It doesn't stand against it like, well, they're really nice people read deep down inside. But the acts, the, the, the things that we do, the things that hurt and harm other people, whether psychologically, emotionally, physically, financially, God's not okay with. Because if God was just, if God is true, then if God said this is right and that is wrong, but he overlooks the wrong, well, he's not just anymore. He's not true anymore. And this is the idea that the psalmist is trying to see. Let me show you something here. The first three stanzas give us God's credentials. It's his resume. So what does he tell us? God knows us. God can find us. God created us. We were created for a purpose. We were created for something beautiful, something profound, something that was meant to, to, to redeem this planet. But instead, that free will, those choices we get to use, we can do whatever we want with it. The first three stanzas gives us God's credentials. The psalmist knows God knows everything. Therefore, God is qualified to be angry with evil. And we stand with God when we stand against what God stands against. See, the psalmist talks about these three stanzas. And the reason these three stanzas, you might as well see these as a, as a preface to the final stanza. God, I hate what you hate. I am against what you are against. And I don't care if culture says it's okay. 
I don't care if the, if the world at large says this is okay. God, if you tell me this is wrong, then I stand with you. Because you are true. You are just. You are faithful. You are honorable. You are merciful and compassionate. But you also have a standard for us. And you do not turn your face from the cries of the victims. This world, and, and, and we've progressed so far, but the victimization that's taking place right now is at an, almost at an unprecedented level. What is taking place around the world, what's taking place in this community, what's taking place everywhere, if you believe that God is okay with that, then I want to reintroduce to you a God that does care. That God who cries out himself against the injustices that are uh, taking place on this planet. And so the three stanzas help us to understand that when God gets angry, he's not getting angry because he's just looking for reasons. Right? You, you ever worked for a boss? That doesn't matter how, what you did, everything was wrong. I used to work at Canadian Tire, and one of our last jobs you had to do at the end of the evening was what's called facing the aisle. Facing the aisle means you walk down the aisle, and if you've worked in retail, you probably know what I'm talking about, is you take all the products and you bring them to the edge of the shelf so that the aisle looks full. Even though it may not be full, it just looks pretty. Well, my manager was a great guy, and we, were, we loved working for him. My assistant manager, not so much. And uh, when my assistant manager would close the store and we had to face the aisle, it didn't matter how well we did it, it was always wrong. So, for example, you know, to face the aisle, you bring the products, boxes, to the very edge, it looks right. He would walk down the aisle and push things forward if it wasn't at the very edge. And we'd walk behind with a baseball bat, but we wouldn't do anything with it. We worked in sports and seasonal, so we had access to bats. Um, but it was one of those things that didn't matter what you did, it was not right. Right? And you felt like this guy, this person, this individual, as much as Jesus loved him, was being a little petty. He was being like, come on, it's just Canadian Tire. Who cares, right? It's like, you know, but he cared and good on him, I guess, apparently. That individual is a person you kind of go, right? When we stand before God, we don't have a God who doesn't know us. We don't stand before a God that doesn't understand we stand before a God that is, we stand before as naked in truth and, and reality as possible. And when we stand before that God, if he says, this is what is true, this is what is wrong, all we can do is go, yeah, yeah. He has searched us. He has found us. He has created us. Therefore, he is able to judge us. He's able to lead us and tell us what is wrong with this world. Look at um, Psalm 97, verse 10. Let those who love the Lord hate evil. We think too lightly of sin, evil, ours, others, and the world's. Wouldn't this be great if this is what people thought about Christians? Not that how much they hated people, not how much they were angry or with their social media presence, but the thing... That, that, that the marker of a Christ follower was somebody who just did not like to see the vulnerable, vulnerable being oppressed, who hated evil in all its forms, who were seeking justice at every opportunity. Wouldn't that be amazing if that's what people thought about Christ followers as opposed to the other garbage that they think with Christ followers? This would be amazing, right? Like the psalmist says, that those who love the Lord hate evil. Now look how the psalmist closes. Let me close this morning. 
Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me. Test me. Dig into me, God. See what's really there. And then test me. Not in a multiple choice kind of way, but in how I conduct myself, how I live my life. Search me. Test me. But now look at this last part. Lead me in the way everlasting. It's this beautiful phrase, and I wasn't quite sure if I understood. What is the way everlasting? What the psalmist is conveying here, it's a very Hebraic statement. It simply means this, that they don't see eternity as something that happens after you die. But they see eternity as now. The decisions you make now. The way you live now. This is the way everlasting now. See, we have this way of thinking that, that eternity happens once we die. Now they're, now they're with God. And to the Jewish mindset, as soon as you were born, uh, that is your beginning of your eternity. So the psalmist says, lead me in the way everlasting. In other words, let me walk your path now and in the next life. Let me obey you. Let me follow you. Let me, let, me be, let me understand what is true, what is right. Let me be compassionate and merciful. Let me call this world to something more beautiful, something profound, something truthful. Right? Lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139 is a very interesting psalm. And when I was first sitting down and thinking about it, I was like, how do, I, how do I help people to understand this last one? And, and I've got to be honest with you, still I struggle with this, 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 this the level of passion that the writer uses in the fourth stanza of Psalm 139. But it's only because of the first three stanzas that you go, okay. Had he started off with the fourth stanza at the very beginning, you'd be like, whoa, angry person. Relax. Right? But because he puts it at the very end, after he shows us everything about God, we go, okay, Lord, whatever is true, what is right is in you. Whatever is honorable, whatever is, and, and has, has integrity, it's in you. And I will stand with you when you stand against the evil in the world. I will hate what you hate, and I will defend those you love. Because that's what it means to be a Christ follower. That's what it means to understand the psalm. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful that you know us and yet you still love us. God, we're so grateful that you care about us. You care so much about us that you call us to something more, something beautiful, something profound. I pray, Lord Jesus, for each person in this room and myself and for those who are away on vacation and traveling, Lord. God, we want to stand with you. Sometimes we don't understand what that is. Sometimes we don't know what that looks like. But God, we just want to be a people that stand with you. And we don't want to live so enmeshed with the world that we forget about what is true and what is right. God, call us to something, something beautiful, something sacred. Help us, Lord, to 
be your hands and feet on this world. And God, let us not turn a, a blind eye to the evil that takes place in this world, but instead, let us be the defenders. Let us be those who call others to something beautiful. Thank you, Lord, for your love and your mercy, which the Bible talks about time and time again. But thank you, Lord, that you still have a standard, that you still have what is right and what is wrong. And that you provide a way for us to go from what we are to what we could be. I pray that this week that these words would go with us, that we would read Psalm 139, we'd meditate on what the writer says, Lord, so that we can grasp a hold of of the fourth stanza, the fourth verse. God, thank you for this day. In Jesus' precious name, amen.